Welcome to Awakening. Allow yourself to settle and arrive. We will begin in five minutes. Welcome. We begin now with our awakening, Torah, Musar, Mindfulness. I am Rabbi Chassi Steinbauer, the founder and director of the Institute for Holiness, Kihilat Musar. You are joining us in our free will offering that we offer every week, Bezrat Hashem, God willing, on Sundays at 7.30 p.m. here in Israel, 12.30 Eastern Standard Time and all the other time zones, all are welcome. So today is the 24th of the month of Av on the Hebrew calendar, and it is Sunday, August 21st. We are going to be covering Ekev. So we call it Awakening Ekev Torah Musar Mindfulness, which was the, the Shabbat Torah portion last Shabbat, yesterday. So if you uh, happen to reside in community uh, and uh, either listen to the Torah reading or study the Hebrew Bible or the Torah yourself, uh, that was the portion that we read late, leading up to the Shabbat and we heard it read in synagogues throughout the world. So that's what we will be covering where we look at this from the lens of Musar mindfulness, which is our practice. And we see how we can apply this to our lives. There will be a guided mindfulness meditation later after I share a little bit about this Parsha and what we can learn from this portion. Before we jump in, this is our 47th sitting together. Mazel Tov, it's excellent. We're going through the whole year. And this is um, a wonderful thing to be taking refuge in community and practicing together. Whether you're joining us here live on Zoom or on our YouTube channel, which is live streaming right now, or on Facebook or other mediums such as LinkedIn or Twitter. You can find all our information on the website at kihilatmusar.com. So let's jump in with our kavanot, our intentions for today's practice, which is what we do before we begin this every time, which we always practice at three levels in our Musar mindfulness practice. The first is how we treat ourselves, how we are in relationship with others, and then our relationship with the divine. So we say, we see this act together, this time that we spend doing this awakening practice as a radical act of self-care. You're really taking refuge, spending this time to learn and practice, and it's a beautiful thing. And it really means that you'll be able to, over time, to treat yourself and others better. So we say that before doing this act right now, this is something I'm doing to strengthen my own soul in order to be a benefit to others in the future. Our practice is very other-oriented of how we bear the burden and care for the other. The second is, this is something I'm doing to strengthen my relationship to others so I can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need me. And the final one, we're strengthening our relationship with God, however we may define God or that relationship. This is something I'm doing to strengthen my relationship with the creator, so I can be a better conduit of God's good to others when they need me. And maybe even when I need myself, right? But I need to really care for myself. Okay, so those are our covenant. Those are our intentions for today's practice, which are really important. 
you always want to have an intention for your practice and how you're going to move forward so that you, we know now through brain science and research coming out of, uh, for instance, the Institute of the Greater Good from the University of California at Berkeley teaches and really studies how these practices impact us on a daily level. And one of the key things, of course, is that when you have an intention and you actually say it or write it or dance it or express it, that you're more likely to fulfill it. You're more likely to be successful in that in, in that practice. So may it be so, we merit that we bring great joy and equanimity and cause less harm and suffering through today's practice. So Ekev, what does Ekev look like? Okay, you should, for those of you who are following along and really uh, study this week to week with me, the term Ekev should bring up a name for you, okay? Ayan Kuf Vet, right? It is uh, the name of Yaakov, our beloved ancestor, our beloved patriarch, our second, third in line. It goes Avraham Yitzhak Yaakov. He is the father of the uh, 12 sons, also daughters, one of them known as Dina, uh, who uh, really create the children of Israel and really create these master families and tribes, okay, over time. And so um, Ekev, right, is coming to mind here. And I'm going to give just a little brief summary, and then I'm going to focus in on what I think we need to get out of today's session, at least for today, right here and right now. So let's give context. Moshe Rabbeinu, our beloved uh, ancestor, our beloved prophet, leader, who is leading the children of Israel through this 40 years in the desert, uh, uh, basically is in his closing speeches. He's like the dying grandfather or father, uh, the Abba or Saba on his deathbed, even though he's not in his deathbed, but theoretically, and he wants to get across everything he wants you to remember. It's like he's giving you an ethical will, okay? So he basically asks, and the language is ask, okay? He asks the Israelites, our ancestors, to follow the mitzvot, the commandments, and uh, to remember that God cared for them during the desert. Now let's put this in context, two things. He, he's never asked really anything. Like if anything, he's been this whole time been telling people what to do. And also God, God in this, uh, in this uh, <clears throat> portion actually uses the language of Shin Aleph Lamed to ask, asking the people to uh, fear God or have fear all. We'll, we'll, we'll delve into that. So we have this shift, this huge shift in language. Suddenly there's been a shift in how we're going to relate to Moshe and God, that we're suddenly being asked to do something. And also he's speaking to the children of Israel, who are like, as I'll remind you, who are the ones who survived, who were under the age of 20, who weren't taken and had passed away in the desert. And he's reminding them of that God took care of them in the desert. Well, is the people are the people under age of 20 going to remember that? Some of them might remember some things, but really it's not their journey. It wasn't their journey. It was their parents' journey and their grandparents' journey. And, and this is very important to remember because so much of this gets, uh, when we talk about intergenerational trauma, for instance, well, there's also something known as intergenerational resilience. Uh, what we learn to be strong and get through things, we learn just as much from our ancestors as any 
genocide or trauma that might have happened and also affects us and sometimes in negative or unpleasant ways. So when he's speaking to the children of Israel, Moshe, it's really assuming that they were there or that they've kind of subsumed that experience in their bones, right? In their DNA as if it were theirs. And that might not make sense to us. We like to think often as modern practitioners that we're like this independent, separate self, but really we're beginning to know if we admit to ourselves and also in the latest research that we're actually more uh, one and united than we like to admit sometimes. And so we're witnessing this right now. So he also wants to remind them that they're going to be rewarded. They're going to be blessed and the land will produce food if they follow God's laws. Okay. This can be challenging for a lot of people. So just notice what comes up for you as I share this part with you, if you're triggered at all. Um, this sometimes comes up for modern practitioners where they feel like, you know, people have followed God's laws and sometimes there's still a drought or a famine. And sometimes there's a, they're not blessed, right? They're not able to be fertile as it says they will be. And so what do we do with that? You know, we, we have to, we have to hold that, right? There's no need to necessarily deny and reject, but also just hold that liminal space, that gray, what's going on here. So um, the biggest fear that we're seeing in this, in this Torah Parsha, you're going to see is the fear of complacency and for, and forgetfulness. And what, what is that fear stemming from that the children of Israel will become comfortable and wealthy, meaning they will settle on the land and have everything they need and maybe more, and that this will lead to a, what the tradition sees as a type of arrogance uh, in the sense that um, you think that everything that you have comes from your own hand instead of from God, and so you attribute it to your own hard work and not as a gift from God. And so, um, it leads to this kind of complacency and forgetfulness, forgetfulness of the covenant, forgive, forgetfulness of how you're supposed to behave, of the commandments, of the mitzvot, okay? That's the fear going on in this parsha. Um, so one of the ways that's suggested as a practice, it's not worded this way, but this is how we're going to see it in Musar Mindfulness, is that the mitzvah, the commandment of blessing after eating, which is known in the Hebrew as birkat ha-mazon, the blessing after eating of food. And um, that if this is practiced, it is seen as countering this uh, complacency and this forgetfulness that comes up when people start taking their gifts for granted, right? So we're going to want to hold that as, as mindfulness and Musar mindfulness practitioners. We know that we have to bring that kind of awakeness and alertness to all of our practice uh, because even something as blessing after a meal can become rote, right? We can just run through, thank you, God, for the food, right? And just not be really awake and present for it. So there, there might be another quality that we need to look at. So Moshe goes on to tell of the rebellion of the golden calf of the Egel, okay? Were these children there then? No, okay? Not even if they were 20. <laughs> they, they were not there during that incident. He reminds them that the people, uh, you know, rebelled and uh, worshiped this golden calf, which I've talked about. You can go back to that 
Parsha and look what I have to say about that. Um, but he wants to remind people that he stuck up for the people. He prayed to God. So his practice, his method was to pray to God, to remember the ancestors, to remember Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Ekev, okay? That we are to uh, remind God of them and pray. That's his practice to kind of turn the wrath, right? Turn the reaction of God uh, from, from whatever um, God wanted to do uh, at that moment, which if you recall, was actually to obliterate everyone. So Moshe in his love, his acts of love, remember we talked about love last week? Well, it's an act of love for somebody to pray on your behalf and attempt to save you. And so this is one of the key moments where we see Moshe really balanced. And um, you might even think in your own life, I don't know if you've had experience in your practice of maybe a family member or a sibling or someone else that you really felt like you had to stick up for um, or pray on their behalf. And that was really an act of love. They might not even have been deserving in that moment, but because of you and your connection and you wanting to practice, you did that. And so um, this is what we see Moshe doing. So we're reminded of three key things that we need to do with God in this Parsha. And the language is very different from all the other four books of the five books of Moshe, of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. So we're told to fear God, which that's an English translation. The term is yira. Yira means both fear and awe. We don't even have that word in English. It's really holding both, okay? So we're going to want to pay attention. What do we mean by that? So fear can be fear of danger, that kind of real physical embodied feeling of the race, of the fight, flight, any of those kind of strong reactions. That's fear. It's usually that you're fearful of uh, sinning, fearful of uh, not being uh, fulfilling what God wants, not fulfilling what others want, a uh, kind of fearing of causing disappointment, a uh, fear of punishment, perhaps. Those all fall under the fear wing. And then there's simultaneously awe of like the largeness and unbelievable limitness to God's glory and wonder and the miracles and just unbelievable holding and sustenance of all of earth and all of us. And that, that grandeur, you know, and some people experience this, for instance, in nature, when they're like standing, for instance, at Masada or at the Grand Canyon or other big, spacious, beautiful land to really have that awe. Another example is like when you're carrying a child on your shoulder and that, and that, and you're like walking down the street or maybe somewhere else. And that, kind of simultaneous, like you're fearful that they're going to fall, you're holding on. And there's the awe that you're carrying this amazing, beautiful soul on your shoulders. And so it's that, that, that combination, okay? And we don't have a word for that in English, but that's what's going on here. So that we have this fear, awe of God, that we have love of God, and that there's devikut, okay? Det, dalet vet kuf, which means to stick to God. What does it mean to stick to God, right? And if you do this, the rains will come, we're told in this Parsha. So what is, is Devakut even desirable, right? What does it mean to stick? So if you look at the uh, Devarim, uh, where we are in Deuteronomy and Ekev, if you go to chapter 11, uh, Pasuk, 
Verse 22, for instance, this is where you'll see it here, is if you then faithfully keep all my, uh, this instruction, which what are we talking about here? We're talking about mitzvot. It says ha-mitzvah hazot. Are we talking about the Torah when we say ha-mitzvah hazot? It's usually ha-torah hazot. That's open. That I command you loving the Lord your God, walking in God's ways, holding fast to God. So the language here is to, to hold fast to God here. But then it goes on to say, um, it's really ud davkabo. Okay, they translate it as holding fast. That's not a great translation. Uh, to stick to God. What does it mean to stick to God, right? Um, and then we even um, you want to be reminded in Deuteronomy earlier in uh, chapter four twenty four, we were told that God is like a devouring fire. God is able, and the language actually uses achla eishi. He like he eats. He's able to eat like fire, like, you, you know, when a fire takes over like a, a forest fire and the, the, that ability exists in the divine and, and might have been experienced by and definitely was experienced by the children of Israel during their time in the desert. And so how can you stick to something that can devour you? Right. And more even importantly, how can this be commanded? I want to bring this back to can you command fear, all and love? And so that's why the language is used actually in Deuteronomy in this Parsha and Ekev, where God asks it, which is totally new. It's incredible. I mean, we all should have a little awe around this, <laughs> the changing relationship, right? And where God asks this of the people, and that's the verb used, I'm trying to find the pasuk where that was. Um, I'll eventually get to it, um, or I'll put it up on the website afterwards, but the language is kind of ask this for the first time. And um, so I just want to get back to this stickiness, right? This divi kut. Is this even desirable? Um, hang on a second. So Ramban, one of our classic rabbinic commentators from 800 years ago in Spain, he actually says that um, you should practice divi kut, this stickiness, this clinging to God, is so strongly that when you, even when you're speaking to others with your mouth and tongue, uh, that your heart is actually not present with your words and tongue. It's not present with the people. It's with God. That rather, you're always before God. And we even have that in the Shaviti, uh, where we talk about um, the beautiful kind of contemplation on, I place God before me always, right? Shaviti. Um, I want to trouble that because it is so much part of our knowledge now and practice and Musar mindfulness that um, one, what does it exactly mean to have your heart before God, but then your speech and action over here with the people and that we teach that we should be fully present with the people and we should be fully present in the moment and I'm going to I'm going to even extend that to say maybe it is being before God by being really there with the people and being present with them. Like that is the relationship with God is our relationship with others in that moment and being really there for them um, with mindful listening and with the mindful speech of talking. And um, we know we would even say in halha in Jewish law that you can't actually um, speak to someone, like if you have a customer 
and have your heart directed towards God, because that's in some way stealing, right? You're stealing the person's time. There's always these examples in our Gemara and the Babylonian Talmud and the Halakhic literature that the example of someone who's working for their supervisor or boss, but they're not really present or there, or and that would be considered stealing in a sense. It's like, it's a stealing of da'at, of knowledge, right? Of, of being present. Um, it, you know, the, the the boss or the supervisor thinks that you're there, but you're not really there, right? Because you're, you're before God. And so I want to complicate it and say, what is it that we can do today in this practice of Devikut is it to understand that we are, when we're being really present right here in the, in the moment, really being there for the soul in front of us and recognizing them as created in the image and likeness of God, of really honoring them, that is really connecting with the divine in both of us. And that it need not be this uh, external thing that your heart has to be towards some other idea of God over here and you're speaking with the person here. So I just want to complicate what Ramban be, brings to the picture. But the most important thing you want to keep in mind in this practice, and we'll actually move into a practice of this soon, is are you feeling different? Are you behaving differently when you actually keep God in mind and keep in sense knowledge of the of the divine within to the person that you're connecting with and speaking with and does that help you behave differently and feel differently and so notice that this week it's part of your practice and your cheshbon hanefesh journal and your counting of the soul journal how is it different for you when you practice this week this divikut this clinging this sticking sticking to god um that it's that divine point within the person that you're relating to, and maybe even to yourself, right? Being present for that. So we're going to hold that. That's what I take from this week's Parsha of Ekev. There's a lot there, obviously, uh, but that's what we're going to hold. And um, I'll just close with one other teaching that I want to share with you, because you all know, when I shared the Kavanot, the intentions at the beginning, this concept of um, being a better conduit of God's good. So that teaching comes from one of our great teachers, Rabbi uh, Shimon Shkop, and his introduction to Share Yosher. And he really is the one that reminds us is that our mission statement in life uh, as Musar mindfulness practitioners and as human beings in general, but especially as Jews, is this concept that our greatest desire should be about bringing God's good to others, that we should be uh, attempting to benefit others. And that's that's not a small task to actually wake up every morning with that desire as your first intention of the day. So he goes on to say something quite amazing. He goes on to say that this Torah study that we're doing together, this um, weekly awakening and in general, he understands it as... Um, <clears throat> that the this practice of learning together engenders what he calls yirat shemaim. And this goes back to our word yir, yira, which is the fear and awe together. And that it engenders that in us, this total awareness of and appreciation of fear and awe, whatever that fear might be, maybe fear of not being awake to the preciousness of life. And we might fall asleep again. 
um, but that it engenders this Yirat Shemaim. And not only that, that it improves our ability and drive to benefit others, that this is what we are doing in this practice. And um, I get this from uh, my colleague and beloved friend, uh, Rabbi Micha Berger, in his text, Widen Your Tent, highly recommended. And uh, it's on page 181. He actually goes through the introduction to Shari Yosher, looking at Rabbi Shimon Shkop's work. So we just want to keep this in mind when we're doing this weekly Torah portion that we want to engender this Yerat Shemaim, this real awe and fear of, of the heavens, of God, uh, however we may interpret that, and that we are really improving through our balancing our midot, our soul traits in this practice to um, improve our ability and drive to benefit others. May it be so. So we're going to move into our mindfulness meditation practice now. So I want you to allow yourself to settle and arrive. If you are sitting, bring yourself up to an upright posture, whatever that might mean for you. If you need to lie down, do so with your eyes open. If you have vision, if you need to stand, go ahead and do so, or even a walking meditation, just gently walking back and forth. Whatever you need in this moment, if you have any chronic pain or issues, no need to sit or force yourself into an uncomfortable posture. So <clears throat> for those of you who are sitting like I am, you want to ground your feet. You want to be held by Mother Earth. <clears throat> you want to be really held. That way, if you have any trauma or um, any type of issues going on that feel uh, somewhat uh, unsafe or out of control, you can always open your eyes if you have vision and ground yourself by looking around and making sure you know that you're here. So the rest of us, if you have vision, I invite you to close your eyes if you feel safe and ready so that you basically lock out the stimulation of anything visual before you. And you can lower your gaze if needed. So just as it's possible to direct our attention to the breath and to body sensations, we can bring our mindful loving awareness to be directed to observe our thoughts. And so we will move into a mindfulness of thoughts practice today. And we'll begin with three deep cleansing breaths, inhalation and exhalation, allowing yourself to settle. Inhalation, exhalation, allowing yourself to arrive. Inhalation, exhalation, coming to ease, coming to presence, coming to the gift of this practice, allowing your breath to just settle to its own natural rhythm. And from time to time when your thoughts wander, which they will, that is the practice, or strong sensations in the body pull your attention away. Know that you simply 
begin again, bringing yourself and your awareness to your anchor, to my voice, to your thoughts. So you include mindfulness of thought in your general mindfulness meditation. Just as you follow the sensations of your breathing or the sensations in your body, there will be a stream of thoughts in the background. Just let them be. No need to try to control them or push them away. No need to judge them. A simply kind, attending and befriending, a leaning in, letting them rise and fall like the waves of the ocean around the breath. Periodically, whether it's after three breaths or six breaths or 10 breaths, a strong thought will arise and carry the attention away. As soon as you notice this thought, name it gently according to its predominant quality. You can use simple notes like planning, remembering, judging, worrying, imagining, fearful thought, happy thought, Interesting thought, creative thought, painful thought, and so forth. Simply naming and acknowledging the thought is supportive of the witnessing quality of mindful loving awareness. Notice how in your meditation right now that you can simultaneously bear witness, having this kind of inner distance of watching your thoughts, watching your practice, being present for whatever arises, and you're fully here at the same time. Simply return to the mindfulness of breath and body until another strong experience, a strong thought or emotion or sound pulls your attention away. The practice is really just waking up to when we've been pulled away with that curiosity, that what we call the beginner's mind, no need for judging yourself, no need for pushing away whatever the experience is. 
No need for over-identifying with it or storytelling around it. Simply just noting. Stepping out of the stories the thought tells. You can begin to see a common pattern of thought without being caught in it. We begin to rest in the field of mindful loving awareness rather than repeatedly being carried away by thought. Now this quality of what we call the hitra hake, this inter, inner distancing, this ability to bear witness without reactivity is part of the gift from God that we all have. And it's what I would say is part of the devikut, of this clinging, this sticking to God, sticking to the ultimate present moment, the only place I could really encounter God and life as it is. Right here, right now, the next one, the next minute, this one, this one right here. All we have is right here and right now in the present moment. And we can simultaneously be watching and aware that we're in it and be fully here, encountering the divine within, refuge and community. You can alternate your mindfulness of breathing with mindfulness of strong experiences as they arrive. You become a steady, loving witness of all that arises and passes. You become a peaceful one sitting still amidst the rising and falling waves of experience. We move into investigating a little bit more of how we are growing in our mindfulness practice. Notice how it feels the very moment you shift from being absorbed or lost in thought to simply name it without being swept into it or, by, or without pushing it away. Where do you feel it in your body? What is the sensation when you've become awake that you were carried off? Does it feel like notice which types of thoughts really have an effect on your body? What thoughts trigger you most? What are their bodily effects? Notice how some thoughts automatically bring strong emotions and how some emotions automatically bring up certain thoughts. So 
in your practice of mindfulness of thoughts and your meditation formal practice this week, learn to witness the interplay between thought and emotion. You may experiment by deliberately bringing up a certain type of thought, whether it be a sad one or an angry one or a loving thought. And notice how powerfully these thoughts and their connected emotions affect the whole state of your body and mind. In our last minute of silent meditation, allow yourself to feel in your body when you begin to think how you can bring God's good to others. Where does that sit with you? What does it feel like? Allowing yourself to nurture yourself. We move into silence and I will pull you out of the meditation when we are done. Gently and slowly allow vision to return to your awareness if you have vision. Bring yourself back into this sacred space that we share together in your practice. Thank you for your practice. Ah, it's good to be doing this together. God willing, Bezrat Hashem, we meet next week where we will move into Parashat Re'eh. I recommend that you read it and study it and contemplate on it before we meet. We now have the opportunity. Uh, Susan, you're here with us if you wish. You're welcome to unmute yourself and share if you have any questions or comments or anything for today's session. If not, you're welcome to just pass. Okay, I'm going to take it as a pass. If I'm wrong, you'll unmute yourself. So as we do every week, we accept your dana, your truma, your donations in honor of anyone as a sponsorship or in memory of someone each week, whatever amount you can afford 
helps support the Institute for Holiness and its mission and what it offers to the world. And we gladly accept it. Uh, you will find a recording of this on our YouTube channel and of course on the website. And we welcome you to subscribe to our newsletter and updates and to consider becoming a member of the community where you'll be involved in lots of wonderful things, including our upcoming Rosh Chodesh Ulul gathering for members only. Uh, I saw that you went off mute. Did you want to say something, Susan? I just want to make sure I don't end beforehand. I just wanted to say shalom and thank you very much. Oh, shalom to you. <laughs> you. It's so grateful to have you. Your puppy or dog wants to say something. <laughs> nope. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't, don't apologize. No, I love it. I love it. You know, the all animate beings right we all inanimate we 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 practice for everyone and so we have to believe there's something there to share and i'm grateful for it it brings joy and smile to all of us so with that i wish you a wonderful week for those of you who may be wherever you are in the world and what you're planning right now for us here we're closing down in the summer and with if we if you have children like I do you're getting them ready with all their school materials and building up and taking any final vacation if you're privileged and blessed enough to have that in your life and may you be safe and may you be at ease and may you be healthy and may we wish that for everyone out in the world thank you for your practice and I look forward to being with you next week take care